I'm glad to be back. It's been uh, a year since I had an opportunity to share with you. And uh, Susie and I miss you uh, a great deal and pray for you. Please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you know where Psalms is, it's just a few books in front of that. I want to begin with a story today. I have a son who lives in San Antonio, Texas, and a couple of times a year I go down to see him. And half the time I drive and half the time I fly. And uh, when I do drive, it's a 17-hour drive, and I do it all in one shot, and I'm all by myself. And after I'm in the car an hour, I say, why am I doing this? This is crazy. But um, I enjoy uh, getting down there and spending time with them. And uh, part of the trip is, is just fun for me, just to kind of be in the car and listen to music. And, uh, of course, by the time you get to be about 10, 12, 14, 15 hours into it, it gets to be kind of ugly. And especially when you get down to Austin, Texas, there's only one um, interstate that goes through the city. And uh, I've always been there during rush hour, either the morning or afternoon, and it is nuts. And I'm from Chicago, so I'll tell you it's bad. So I get down there, and uh, Michael said, well, Dad, why don't you try taking the, the uh, bypass? You know, it's a little longer, costs you some money, it's a toll road. I said, well, sure, I'll give it a try. So I get on the toll road, and uh, first thing I see is it goes from 75 miles an hour to 80, and I'm all about that, I'll tell you. Um, and, and so I'm on my way going around Austin, and things are going pretty well, and I must have missed my turn off to get back on the interstate that takes you south into San Antonio. And, uh, you know, I got nervous because I'm driving and driving. I don't see any signs. And uh, finally, the first sign I see is speed limit 85 miles an hour. And I really like that. <laughs> and by the way, now don't quote me and don't you do this, but I heard a policeman tell me one time that if you do eight, you're fine. If you're nine, you're mine. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I do go maybe a mile or two over, okay? So I'm doing 85 plus um, on this road, and then the phone rings, and Michael, my son, calls, and he says, Dad, where are you? And I said, son, I don't know where I am or where I'm going, but I'm having the best time of my life. Well, today we want to talk about where we're going spiritually and, and, and how we're going to get there and to have kind of a plan. And hopefully, that obviously, that needs to come from God. And I'm going to use three illustrations this morning. We're going to talk about a woodpecker. We're going to talk about uh, using the ladder that's over here and also uh, a cell phone, something that we're all very familiar with. And uh, the first PowerPoint I have today is from... Uh, oh, we got a little too far here. First one is, uh, if you could dim the light just a little bit too, that would be great. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. You know, there's something within nature that cries out that God is God. And uh, we need to be aware of that and to be alert to these places where God speaks to us through nature. Now, I'm going to show a video for you here this morning about the woodpecker. So, Brian, if you've got it queued up, why don't you just turn it on for us? It's a bird you'll see around your house. But after taking a closer look at it, you might find it unbelievable. 
The woodpecker is a very special little bird. The beak of a woodpecker is like industrial strength. It is stronger than other birds' beaks. Uh, he has special feet. Most birds have three toes out the front, one toe out the back. Woodpecker has two toes out the front, two toes out the back. And that's so he can climb around on a tree trunk, a vertical tree trunk, right side up, upside down, sideways. He can crawl any way he wants to. He has uh, special tail feathers. His tail feathers are different than other birds' tail feathers. Uh, they're more resilient. They're, they're spongy and they're very strong and tough because he tripods himself with his two feet and his tail feathers so that he grabs a hold of that tree, fans out his tail feathers, and then bangs his head into the tree. Now, you would think that a woodpecker would go home every night and say to Mrs. Woodpecker, Oh, I got this headache. I was banging my head on a tree all day. But he doesn't. Why? Because God made him with special equipment. For instance, between his beak and his skull, there's a piece of cartilage. It lacks as a shock absorber. His skull is, is the thickest bone per body weight of any creature. As a matter of fact, brain surgeons study the brains of woodpeckers, how they're hooked in there and everything to help them with like trauma people in accidents that they need to put their brains back in there. And, uh, and so they study woodpeckers. The woodpecker with his strong skull and his shock absorber and his strong beak and his tail feathers and his feet, he's all ready to go except for one thing. Once he drills his hole, he's got to get that bug out of the tree because that's lunch. All right, well, how's he going to do that? Well, most birds, their tongue goes right to the tip of the beak. A woodpecker's tongue goes as much as 10 inches out of his beak. Now, why? Well, because he's going to drill the hole, find the bug tunnel down in the tree, stick his tongue down in the tunnel, and drag the bug out. Now, you would have to say, could I stick my tongue down a hole in a tree and drag a bug out? Of course not. Well, how does the woodpecker do that? Well, God made the woodpecker with little barbs on the tip of his tongue. And he will literally stab that bug larva down in there because it doesn't want to come out. But in case that's not enough, he has a little glue factory in his tongue that manufactures exactly, precisely the right glue to stick to the bug, but it doesn't stick to his beak. And so he pulls that bug into his mouth. Now we have a problem, if evolution is true. Let's say over hundreds of thousands of years, this woodpecker got all this equipment and then he glues his tongue to a bug and he swallows the bug. What just happened to his tongue? He just swallowed his tongue. You know, he dies, he just strangled himself, okay? But he doesn't, why? Well, because as he brings the bug into his mouth, he has another little factory that manufactures the solvent to dissolve the glue. So he dissolves the glue, loosens up the bug, swallows the bug. God made him that way. Woodpeckers, when they peck, they open their eyes between each peck and they aim their beak, they focus, they aim their beak, they close their eyes, and then they hit the tree. So you hear a woodpecker out there, he's going, brr, brr. Every time you hear that, brr, in between each peck, he opens his eyes, focuses, aims his beak, hits the tree. Why? Well, they used to think it was just to keep the wood chips out. But now the scientists have measured the, the force of the impact of the woodpecker's head against the tree. And the force is so great that if he did not close his eyes, he would pop his eyeballs out. So I would say, have you ever seen a blind woodpecker? No, they never miss. They never miss. Okay. Now, one special woodpecker, the European green woodpecker. I think he's unique in all the animal kingdom. I don't know for sure, but I think he might be. His tongue is different than any other tongue, as far as I know. Our tongue starts in the back of our throat, comes up and out the front. His tongue starts in the back of his throat, goes down the throat, comes out the back of his neck, up over the top of his head. It's under the skin comes out a little hole between his eyes, goes in one of his nostrils, and then comes out of his beak. And you would have to say, now how does that evolve? 
I've asked evolutionists that question. I've said, now you tell me, how and where did that tongue come from? They, they don't have a clue. They can't tell me. I'm saying, well, you're telling me that this bird evolved from some other creature, but there's no other creature that we know of with a tongue like that. How did that happen? They don't have any idea. So what could I say as a creationist? I would say God made that little woodpecker, and I think he made that woodpecker to challenge the evolutionary community. Because as they study that little bird, they know there is no way this little thing could evolve. But it goes right back to that Romans 1 passage, that as men study the creation, it says they study what God has made, because they are unrighteous, they will suppress evidence. They will hold back evidence. And I think that's exactly what happened. I think there are very bright people who study science and do a good job of it. But all of a sudden they get to a point where they have to decide, did this thing happen uh, over long periods of time somehow? Or, boy, it sure looks like it could have happened just bang, just like it is. And then if they discover, hey, I have no way of describing this thing in terms of evolutionary science, they're faced with the other option, which is maybe a designer and a creator. And they say, I don't want to go that way. OK, so they suppress that evidence. And so many of the things that I studied, we had to search just to find information on them because they are not in the textbooks. They just don't put them in because they have no way to explain it. And so they just ignore it. I wanted to show that today because um, I, I think that there are things in life that clearly point out the existence and reality of God. And there are places in your life today, maybe it's through circumstances of what's going on, or maybe it's because you see it in somebody else's life, that somehow you see God. And there is a connection that we need to make every day. So that we not only don't forget that fact, but that we understand the implications of what it means to know who God is. So as I share with you here this morning, you know, there's this big connection that we need to make between ourselves and God. Now I have the ladder here as a second point of illustration here today, something we're familiar with. And uh, obviously this is a step ladder. And I, I just want to talk about something in, uh, from Scripture that, that uh, is, is made very clear, first by Peter, if we can go there and see what he has to say. I got it backwards. Right, like newborn babes, crave spiritual, uh, pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, that you may take a step up with God. Now, I, I think you understand this. In fact, Paul says it in a different way in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. You know, I, I, again, this is a very crude and, and simple illustration, but, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a step up in terms of what you know, in terms of what you experience with God. And, and that's very important that we, we do that, because that just doesn't happen naturally. It's something that we do intentionally. And, and as I'm talking to you today about, about the Lord, um, again, there's this connection in life that you have where you're able to grow uh, with the Lord. 
Now, there's this third illustration I want to use today. Obviously, you all know what this is. This is a cell phone. We use this every day for many, many, many different types of things. And as I'm sharing with you today, I want to just have this represent what it means to be able to talk to God, to be able to have a conversation with him. In, In Psalm 17, verse 6, it says, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. There's this dialogue that we're able to have with God. Uh, You hear me and you hear my prayer. Now think about what God has made possible for you. When Jesus died on the cross for us, He helped us to know that God is real, that God is personal, that we're able to know Him. That was His great desire, that we would enter into a personal relationship with Him, that we'd be able to talk with Him, the eternal God. And so again, I I, I don't want to make assumptions here today about where we all are. I know many of you well, and, 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 and some of you obviously I don't know, but, but let's make sure we're all on the same page about this, about this opportunity to know God, to connect with Him, about this opportunity to grow in terms of what it means to believe and to walk with God, in terms of our being able to, to talk to and communicate with the Lord. So um, uh, we're going to talk primarily about prayer today. And uh, as Jesus was here on earth, one of the things that his disciples noticed was the unique way in which Jesus prayed. And they, they, they were watching him as he'd go off by himself and, and they would hear him pray out loud and, and they knew that there was something different about how he prayed. And so they said, would you teach us to pray like you pray? And that's, of course, where we got the Lord's Prayer from, which is a pattern prayer for us. But as they were seeing this, they knew that they could, their, their, their prayer lives could be improved. Their prayer lives could be strengthened. Their prayer lives could have a, a, a better focus. And so having this attitude of learning to pray is something that just doesn't happen for a small season of life. It's something that, that we can do throughout our lifetime. I'm in my 70s now, and I'm still learning about what it means to be able to talk to God. But what we do want to understand is this, is that while prayer is the most simple thing in the world, I don't want to make it more complex than it is. It's simply talking to God, you know, as you're pouring out your heart to Him. But notice what it says here. We can deepen the simplicity of what it needs to pray. And I want to bring a challenge to us today that we do that. Years ago when I I pastored the church in Moline, I did a series on prayer that lasted several months. And before I started it, I took a survey and I asked 200, well, 200 people answered the survey. And they, they shared a little bit about their prayer habits and, and how they prayed every day. And almost everybody agreed that prayer is effective. I mean, there's value to it and that God hears and that God responds to prayer. They also said that they averaged 16 minutes a day in terms of, of talking to God. I mean, you know, concentrated talking to God. Most people prayed that people would come to know Jesus Christ in their their lives. And most people prayed for their pastors and for the people in their church. Most people prayed for their country and their nation. Most people believed that when they had a problem, that that was especially a time that they needed to pray. And uh, let me just say this too. Uh, Between men and women, uh, who prayed more? Uh, Women did by far. You know, and I, I sometimes get up here as a man and realize that how we deal with God is different because we're made different than women are. But, you know, this is just an indication of that. But women tend to to pray for a longer period of time each day than men. But here are some interesting things about this survey that really hit me between the eyes. 
Most people learned to pray on their own. It, was, it wasn't that they had a mentor or a teacher that, they, that helped them to learn prayer, about praying. Most people were not uh, excited about praying in public. In fact, they did not want to pray in public. And I don't know if you've heard this before, but after the fear of death, speaking in front of people is one of the biggest fears that people have in their lives. And so prayer in public isn't something that's easy for people to do. Um, also, um, every, they said that they did not have accountability for their prayer lives, and they didn't talk much about their prayer life specifically again with others. That they looked at this as something, well, this is between me and God. You know, don't, I don't need to have you talk to me about how I talk to him. And most people weren't that interested in um, growing in this area of life too. In fact, I want to say this today, that most people were comfortable. Now, I'm going to go back to the ladder over here again. It's as if that, you know, in life you learn how to talk to God or you develop a certain way that you talk to God, a, a certain pattern in your life of how you talk to God. And then you get here and then, you know, it's not a matter of saying, well, you know what? I can pray a little different. I can pray more deeply. I can, I can grow in, in, in terms of intimacy and, and, and how I talk to the Lord. Most people didn't want to do that. Now, again, I, I just want to say that I'm going to lay a challenge here before you today because I know that today I need to take a step up in this. I've been really convicted as I've been preparing this over the last weeks in coming down here and sharing with you. I don't ever want to get to the point where I say to Jesus, I'll go here but no further. And so today let's talk about prayer. And again, I want to just invite you to have an open heart and an open mind to what's being shared today. And let God teach you something here today. Well, as we get into this, I want to get into Nehemiah now. Let's read what it says. The words of Nehemiah, son of Halkalah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the capital of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He's 800 miles away. I mean, he's part of this uh, exile, this exodus that God did in picking up the people, taking them out of there and taking them to Babylon. And so he's there and he's asking about his people, friends who went back. How are they doing? And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and a disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, if there's going to be a focus here today on this business of prayer and our praying to God, I want to kind of zero in on one dimension of that, and that's how we pray for our country today. And uh, we're going to just talk a little bit about praying for our president, no matter who it is, for our Congress, no matter who's in it, for what's happening in the state of our nation, no matter what it is, whether it's good or bad, we want to talk about what it means to talk to God about our country. And I want to tell you, over the last ten years since I left full-time ministry and attended many, many, many churches, it is very rare for me to go to a public worship service like this one and hear specific direct prayer about our country. 
And I think there's something wrong in that. And I want to talk about that point today. People like Nehemiah show us the value of praying for our country and the results of praying for our country. And I want to use a couple of illustrations today. First of all, Nehemiah lived about 2,500 years ago. That's a long time. I've got a couple more current examples. One from 200 years ago uh, in what happened in our nation around 1800. Now remember, 1776, independence, and we've got the War of Independence, 1780s, the Constitution, 1790s. I mean, we're just getting it together as a country. And so in 1800, we come to the point where we find out that drunkenness and immorality and foul language were part of everyday life in America. There were a few people coming to Christ at that period of time. There was a spiritual dullness in the nation. There was a French agnostic by the name of Voltaire who wrote that in the world in 30 years, Christianity will no longer exist. Closer to home, Thomas Paine, known as one of our greatest patriots, also an agnostic, wrote that he thought that within 20 years that we would not see the influence of Christianity in America. And at this time, in Kentucky and Tennessee, there was especially a time where the the people were wild and irreligious. Congress investigated and found that there was not one court of justice in the state of Kentucky over a five-year period of time. That's sobering, isn't it? Peter Cartwright, a Methodist evangelist, said that his father settled in Kentucky and it came to be known at that time as Rose Corner. If you killed somebody in the original 13 colonies and you got over the Appalachian Mountains, you were safe from justice. You didn't have to worry about it anymore. Things got so bad that they formed vigilante groups in order to try to, to do something about what was going on. And they fought a pitched battle with the, with the, with the, uh, the criminals and they lost. Concerned Christians were desperate in terms of what they were going to do and so they began to pray. What else do you do when you're helpless and you're powerless and you're desperate and you're up against it and you have this sense of what you don't know what you're going to do? Well, the first thing you do, obviously, and where do you start? You start with, God help me. What are we going to do about this? And so, something became very real at that time, and it was this promise. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And God provided a Nehemiah, and here's who he was, James McGreedy. You may have never heard of this man before. He was a Scottish-Irish Presbyterian pastor, and he felt a call to go to Kentucky. So he goes to Logan County, and he starts pastoring three small churches. And when he's there, he said in his diary in the winter of 1779, there was weeping and mourning of the people of God because... They knew that something was wrong and they needed God to do something about it. Now that's what Nehemiah felt. That's what we just read in Nehemiah a minute ago. And he asked the people to pray. And he said, on the first Monday of every month, I want you to dedicate a a certain time to pray for me in our nation. Then he also asked them to pray, especially for him, on Saturday night as he was getting ready to preach the next day and also at the break of dawn on Sunday morning. 
Nine months later, in 1800, in the summer, the Great Kentucky Revival began. 11,000 people gathered at one time. Now, you have to understand this. Canton's about 10,000 people, right? Um, but in Kentucky, and those, this is a rural agricultural community. People didn't live close to each other. To get a th- hundreds of people together was imp- almost impossible. 11,000 gathered and answered a prayer to hear the Word of God. And what happened is that the crowd got so large that Pastor McGreedy had to ask the Baptists and Methodists to come together. And what happened is became known as the Great Campground Revivals. And this spiritual movement broke out from where he was into Tennessee and then to North and South Carolina and all across the American frontier. And out of this great revival came to be known the Second Great Awakening and came to be a missionary movement where a lot of the missions that you know about and you support today and you know people who've gone out into the farthest reaches of the world began out of this revival. Such was the movement of God that began with sadness and brokenness and simple prayer for the country. Nehemiah was a great man, and he's got something to say to us this morning. James McGreedy was a great man, and he's got something to say to us this morning. But I want to say this, greatness in the Bible is measured by this, by how you worship. You make the connection in life and give praise to God for who He is and where He is in your life. You know where you are with Him. That's worship. You believe and you have confidence that God is not only here, but He's able to do something in you and us that we never could do for ourselves. And finally, that we live and walk with God every day. Now, you know, from that definition, every one of us in this room can be a great man or woman of God. The door is open for us to take the step up. We've talked about that here today to be able to come closer to God, to know Him in a greater way. Nehemiah's life and testimony is unique. So is James McGrady's. But you know, in your life, you're able to touch literally many, many people in your families, in your community, in your school, and and, and, in the workplace, and in your community here in Canton, and even throughout the nation. You have influence, my friend. And that's what God wants to do. But the issue, of course, obviously, is do we make that connection, that spiritual connection, and do we want to do that? Do we even know how to do that once we open our mouths and talk to God? I want to tell you this is the beginning here today. Nehemiah was a Jew. He was 800 miles away from where he could do anything, literally, for the people there. So how could he have responded? He could have heard what was happening in Jerusalem and said, well, those idiot politicians. Well, a lot of us are saying that today, right? You know, what's going on with these people? Don't they know any better? Or he could have said indifference or acted with indifference and said, you know, let them live. You know, it, 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 let them rot. You know, they made their bed, let them lie in it. Or he could have gotten to a point of despair where he just was so broke. Well, he was that. He was sad and he cried, but then he didn't stop there. Or he could have gotten to the point where he said, you know, I've got food on the table, I'm taking care of myself and my family, so what? But instead, he had compassion and concern and he stopped and he wept. 
You know, when we talk about politics, uh, we often feel about something, don't we? And we feel many different things. And, uh, you know, I worked as a census person about 10 years ago or when they did the 2010 census. And I'll tell you, knocking on people's doors, I mean, people are suspicious of government. They don't like government. They complain about government. Government doesn't do anything good or right. We also see people arguing, you know, between, well, my way is better than your way, you know, Republican, Democrat. You get to the point, too, where you, you know, you throw up your hands, you read the paper, listen to the news, and there's just a pained acceptance of what's going on. Or you get discouraged and you're frustrated, you know, you feel powerless, you don't know how to respond. And, you know, I could get here today and I could start talking about the health care system or crime or lack of punishment or justice or foreign policies or the big topics of the day like immigration or poverty or, or economics or health care or moral and social issues. I could talk about abortion today or, or the redefining of family and marriage and sexuality or the terrible political fighting. I'm, I'm just can't wait. I can wait a long time, rather, for 2020 to come. I mean, the political ads that we're going to be exposed to for a year, the infighting, the hatred that there is between people and politics today. Things were much worse for Nehemiah. He was so far removed from the situation, and a once unified and very powerful country had lost its identity. They abandoned God. They became self-indulgent. They didn't care about the poor. They went into captivity under God's design in exile for 70 years. And when a king said that they could go back, people did. Fourteen years later, they end up with this mess. And Nehemiah hears about it. They were in turmoil, economic hardship. They were afraid, hopeless and helpless. And they were morally and spiritually dead. This was the day of Nehemiah. No wonder for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Eleven times as you read through this incredible book on leadership, there is an indication of how Nehemiah prays. Now we all have feelings about government and what's going on today. But here's the big question today. And I want you to really think about how you answer this. When we pray for our country, our prayers make a difference. True or false? True or false? True or false? Well, we're getting better. But a lot of you are undecided. Or at least it sounds that way. Do we really believe that prayer will make a difference? What if our prayers are too few? What if our prayers are too shallow? What if our prayers aren't specific? What if they aren't really dependent upon God with a confidence? God, you can do something about this. Or what if we're not open to God ourselves? Knowing that prayer makes a difference, should we pray daily specifically for President Trump? Whether you like him or not. Whether it's Obama or Trump or whether it's Bush before him or before him Clinton or before him Bush before him. I don't know. I'm getting back there. You know, it, it's interesting. No matter who's there. Should we pray for Congress? 
20% of people in America think that Congress is inefficient and, and not doing its job. Are we praying for Nancy Pelosi? Are we praying for Mitch McConnell? Are we praying for the issues at hand as they debate things that affect us profoundly? And do we do it publicly? Paul had something to say about this. And I urge you, and notice how, how bigger letters, right? First of all, I mean, this is important, okay? That petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everybody. But then he gets, what does he do? He, he narrows it down. He says, make sure you pray for the king and for all those in authority. Why? Because is prayer going to change them? Well, yeah, it could. But who's it going to change? It's going to change us. It's going to help us to have peace. And you know what? When someone looks at you and your life and you're walking in, in, in the world today and you've got peace or you've got what it says here in the Scriptures here, um, a sense of quietness within your spirit... People are going to notice that and you will have a great influence. And that's why at the end, because this is what pleases God to pray and live this way because he wants everybody to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Evangelism doesn't begin with a program. It begins with a changed life. And it begins with prayer. What are the great promises of God? Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you cannot do not know. What political party is going to bring unity to this nation and solve our problems? Probably not either of them. But who can help? God Himself can do that. Nehemiah saw that and he knew that. And so he goes to the Lord. Who was he talking to? He was talking to the living God after all, the Creator. It's interesting to see you there that sometimes we get to the point and we wonder, God, are you there? Can you do something in our country today? Do we really believe that? O Lord God of heaven, this is what Nehemiah does. The great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and obey His commands. I mean, he's talking. He knows who God is. Now look, I was here for almost 18 months at one point, and I used this illustration many, many times. You're probably expecting me to do it today at some point. You know, I said, our God is this big and our problems this big, or are our problems this big and our God this big? Now, you take this and put this in and say, well, politics, the problems in our, our nation politically, what's happening in our country today? You know, we're concerned. No matter what your point of view is, we're concerned. Is our God this big and our, our problems this big with our country? Or is our God this big and our problems this big? In our heads, Nehemiah said, God, you can't. Fifty-two days after he arrived in Jerusalem, the wall was rebuilt completely and totally. And the people around Jerusalem were shaking in their boots when they saw what God had done. And isn't that the great challenge today for us here today? I've got to tell one final story, all right? Evan Roberts, Wales, England. He started out as a coal miner and he heard the call of God God told him to go to school. So he goes to school to become a pastor. And he's in a service, probably one like this one. And the pastor's preaching and he hears the voice of God. And so he, he, 
He said, I heard the call of God telling me to go back to the young people of my church and preach the gospel. He goes back to, he goes to the principal of the school and he said, is that a voice from God or is that a voice from the devil? Well, the principal wisely said that the devil never gave instructions like that. And so he told him to take a week off and to go back and, and, and studies and go home. So he goes back to his pastor. Well, his pastor's skeptical. Who's this young kid telling me that he wants to speak? But he said, you know, I need to give him an opportunity. So after prayer meeting one night, he, he said, well, you can speak after that. And at the end of the prayer meeting, he gets up and he, uh, the pastor says, our brother Evan Roberts feels that he have a message from God. If anybody would like to stay after our time of prayer, do. Seventeen people did. Here's what he said. Simple, isn't it? Okay. First, you must confess your sins and, and take any wrongdoing and make it right. Well, does that make sense to you? That's a good starting point, isn't it? You know, if, if something's wrong in your life, deal with it. Second, you must... Put away any doubtful habit in your life. If there's something in your life that doesn't belong there, get rid of it. Or want to, you know, start by wanting to get rid of it. The third thing, you must obey the Holy Spirit of God promptly. Don't procrastinate. If God tells you to do something, do it right away. Logical, right? Fourth, You must profess your faith in Jesus Christ publicly. A little bit harder here, isn't it? That you do that. All 17 people responded. And they left that place. I want to begin, I want to tell you a little bit about what happened in all of this here, okay? Um, At by 10 o'clock, all people had responded. The pastor was so excited about the spiritual response and enthusiasm of the people that he asked Evan Roberts to speak at the Tuesday night mission board meeting. Then he asked him to preach on Wednesday night and then every night for the rest of the week. The 17 people went out from that meeting and they began to have the influence I've been talking about with their family members and friends and then their community. And more and more people started coming. And Here's what happened then. The news reached other regions of Wales and the newspaper picked up the story and wrote, Big crowds are being drawn to Lahore. For some days, a young man named Evan Roberts has caused a big surprise. The roads to town are crowded with people trying to get to church. Shops and stores are closing early at night so that shopkeepers and people can go to church. Another newspaper sent a reporter And he wrote, the meeting I went to ended at 4 o'clock in the morning and then people didn't seem to want to go home. They stood about talking about God and what they had heard that night. On the Sunday after Robert started to teach, all of the churches in town were filled to capacity. And over two years, 100,000 of people made professions of faith, first-time professions of faith in Jesus Christ in Wales. Now, isn't that an incredible story? But get this, the social impact was amazing. In in the courts, judges had many fewer cases to try. Rapes, robberies, burglaries, murders, embezzlements all decreased. Drunkenness was cut in half. Within one year, there was a 44% drop in births out of wedlock. The police had little to do. 
Someone went to a police sergeant and said, what are you guys doing now? Well, before the revival, our job was to deal with crime and control crowds like at a football game. But since the revival, there's very little crowds, a little crime. And now the police go where the crowds go. Well, where's that? Well, they go to the churches. Well, how does that affect the police? Well, we have 17 policemen in our station. We have three quartets. If any church wants a quartet, they call the police station. <laughs> Silly story. Believe it or not. But you can't deny 100,000 people meeting Jesus. And you can't deny about what happened in England through Norway to Sweden to Denmark to Canada to the United States to Australia to New Zealand and Africa all influenced because of prayer. Prayer, Eugene Peterson says, now listen to this, okay? This is the punchline and we're at the end here today. Prayer is political action. Prayer is social energy. Prayer is public good. Far more of our nation's life is shaped by prayer than formed by legislation. That we have not collapsed into anarchy and our country is due more to prayer and godly influence of believers than it is to police. Prayer is a sustained and intricate art of patriotism in the largest sense of the word, far more precise, loving, and preserving than any patriotism served up in political slogans. That society continues to be livable and that hope can be inspired is attributed more to prayer than to economic prosperity or the flourishing of the arts. The single most important action contributing to whether health and strength there is in our country is prayer. We're not trying to establish theocracy. We're not trying to get everybody to be an evangelical. We want people to respond to the presence of God in their lives. That's it. And when we pray, you get this. When we pray, we gain a sense of the real and living presence of God. The story that woodpecker should have made you think about our Creator. The latter, an opportunity for you and for you and you and you and me to take that step up with God. And that cell phone... You know, we can talk to God, and I know that you do, but you want to do it in a greater way, a deeper way, a better way. Do you want to go to Jesus this morning and say what those first disciples said, teach me to pray? Well, here's the takeaways, all right? Can you increase the presence of God? What can you do today to get up tomorrow morning and where you wake up and you just know God's here and God's with me? Or that you have this desire, you're going to make this declarative stand, that you're going to take this step up with God, that you, you want to grow in what it means to be a person of faith, or that you have this attitude, you know, teach me to pray. You're going to go to pastor, or you're going to go to Brandon, you're going to go to somebody, your teacher, you know, somebody, teach me. I'm open to that. Are you going to start praying publicly with other people? You know, we need to do that much more than we are. We also need to learn the prayer, pray the prayers of the Bible. And I want to give a big challenge here today, okay? This isn't because I'm here and you're here. I'm with you. 
I want to give a challenge today to the pastors of the church, to the church leaders, to the to people who are serving in this church, to the people who are teaching in this church, to the nursery worker, to the parents today. When you're home with your kids, that you teach them to pray. And especially if you're under 20 today, that you make it part of your life that will mold you and change you in ways that you need to be changed by learning what it means to pray. And that when you have a, a worship service or when you have a, a, an elder board meeting or you meet with the missions team or whoever it is in Sunday school classes, that you just don't open and close in prayer, but that prayer becomes something that's, that you increase in quality and quantity. You know, that's a good challenge for us today. Our country needs us. Our country needs us to live well with Jesus. But our country needs us today to pray. Let me do that now. Father, God, Lord Jesus Christ, can you do something in me today, something in us today to help our nation become more pleasing in your sight? We believe that you are able to do great and mighty things that we do not know in our nation. Help us today, first, by changing us. Help us to pray with the same passion and concern of Nehemiah and Peter and Paul and James McGreedy and Evan Roberts. We pray for our president, President Trump. We pray for our Congress, We pray for the people involved in our judicial system. We pray for all public servants, for policemen and firemen and and people in the military today who serve some in very, very dangerous places today. Forgive us our sins, Father, as a nation. Protect us, but above all, lead us. Because without a doubt, everyone in this room today is coming before you talking and crying out that you, God, would bless America. Amen.